Get it rocking. All right, another episode of your favorite unnamed podcast. Only three guests today. Well, actually, only two regulars and one guest, but a very important guest at that. We got Matthew Stratton of Kennesaw State, right? It's Kennesaw State, right? Yep. Not just Kennesaw. Kennesaw State uh, doing some research with our very own Polly Rocket. Uh, well, doing a research alongside um, in the field of intermittent fasting. Is that correct? Yep. That is correct. Um, so we are going to do, we're going to go through a little bit of study design with Matt today about his recent thesis. It's thesis, right? Yeah. Disser- dissertation is PhD, thesis is master's. Correct. How much I've forgotten since I have left school. But um, we're going to go through Matt's thesis today about intermittent fasting. Um, I'm going to let Paul ask most of the questions as he is our research aficionado our very own lab rat. Um, and then we are going to take some questions from the folks of Instagram. Is there any better place to pull questions from than Instagram? The brightest yeah, and the best. It is a hotbed of intellectuals. Twitter might be up there. But... Tw- oh, that's, yeah, that's a good call. It's probably where um, the intellectuals go. That's true. <laughs> we just haven't quite made it up to Twitter level yet. Yeah. All right, Paul, you want to rock it? Yeah, so uh, let's start with maybe introing the study, talking about the design, and, uh, you know, maybe why you did the study. Sure. So the main point of my study was to look at, like you mentioned, intermittent fasting. So uh, first, kind of need to have a basic overview of what intermittent fasting actually is um, so that, you know, everyone listening is kind of on the same page. So there's a lot of misconceptions about intermittent fasting. Uh, Intermittent fasting is actually more of a blanket term for a bunch of different protocols that include um, alternate day fasting, uh, modified alternate day fasting, whole day fasting, and the one that we all like to think of is uh, in the research you always kind of see it as time-restricted feeding, which is basically putting all of your food into a short window um, throughout the day. So the most common one we see, we kind of have deemed a lean gains diet um, because that's when it got really popular with Martin Burkham back in the late uh, 2000s, around like 2008, 2009-ish, in which uh, individuals put all their food in an eight-hour window, usually between like noon and eight or one and nine. Um, but uh, sadly, there's not actually a ton of research on that. So if you dive into the literature, the most of the research you'll find is on what's called um, alternate day fasting or modified alternate day fasting in which uh, people will have a normal uh, day of normal eating, then a day where they either completely fast for regular alternate day fasting or in modified alternate day fasting, they have a small meal that's about three to 500 calories around noon on that day and then go back to their normal eating habits. Um, and... So um, with that, since there wasn't a lot of research on that, and especially um, in resistance training individuals, uh, sadly to date there's only been three publications using any style of um, intermittent fasting in exercising populations, and only two of those three were resistance training populations. So one of them, they just had them do a bunch of cardio and saw what happened. And of those two, only one of the, of the two uh, resistance training ones, only one was actually calorie controlled. So first start off with the Tinsley 2016 study, 
um, in untrained individuals in which um, they on their they had them trained three days per week and then on their non-training days uh, they had them fit all their food into a four-hour window which is the second most common style of uh, time-restricted feeding that we see that was that one's kind of um, quote unquote the warrior diet mm. um, because it was first popularized by Ori Hoffmeckler in his published book called the warrior diet um, and so in that one, they didn't control um, for uh, food intake between groups. Um, but then there was a little bit of follow-up study by that, uh, by Morrow in 2016, that a lot of people like to quote, because that one was actually one of the definitely more uh, well-controlled studies in which they actually did um, control for calorie intake, and they did the whole lean gain style, so the whole noon to eight, everyone ate between uh, one to nine. Um, in one group or eight to eight in the other group and they actually did control for calories and protein and had them resistance training um, four days per week but uh, they didn't actually put them in a calorie deficit and most people are using time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting as a way to kind of or as a way to lose weight that's the way we see it most of the time so I decided that we kind of needed to do a good controlled study um, kind of like that Mora one, but also while putting them in a calorie deficit because most people are going to be using it while they're dieting and you can't really diet without putting people in a calorie deficit. So um, so we basically got around uh, 30 people, had them, we did supervised training for uh, four weeks, three times per week, full body sessions um, in a kind of a powerlifting style and then uh, controlled their calories. So we put everybody on the same calories and everybody, we made sure to put everybody on the same protein as well. So everyone ate about 1.8 grams per kg of protein per day. And we tracked them throughout the study. We used, um, and also one thing to mention, all the previous studies, uh, they only used DEXA for body composition. Um, so looking at changes in body fat percentage, um, lean mass, so building muscle mass, that kind of thing. And so we decided to take another step further. And so we actually used a full four compartment model, which is kind of the gold standard in research right now, as well as actually taking ultrasound scans of various muscles such as um, the VL, so that muscle on the side of your leg that everyone likes to talk about creates that quad sweep, as well as the muscle on the front of your leg and biceps, just because, you know, who doesn't want a big biceps? This and, is true. <laughs> and um, so, um, like I said, then controlled their diet. We had all of our participants either eat kind of normally throughout the day um, or put all their food into an eight-hour window. Uh, so either one to nine or noon to eight, depending on what time they were going to be training. And then, like I said, we had them come into our gym, and we trained all of them um, throughout the four weeks. And we made sure they were all training at the same time, rough um, during their feeding window, so we could follow good, you know, peri-workout nutrition, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, as well as giving everybody, you know, 50 grams of protein, just because it's all about the protein, um, after each workout, um, and then saw what happened. The, uh, did you mention how big the deficit was? So we put everybody in a 20% calorie deficit, which we determined by um, actually measuring the resting metabolic rate, and then um, putting them in a 20% deficit off of that. Cool. And then so... Uh... I gotta 
Yeah, for people that don't normally work with, say, percentages and, you know, when they diet, like if somebody was eating 3,000 calories, they'd be eating about 2,400 during this dieting period. So pretty substantial deficit, yeah? Yeah, I mean, especially since it was, you know, only four weeks in order for us to actually see something, we had to make sure it was a decent deficit. But that kind of deficit is is by no means unheard of. I mean, you can yeah. look back all the way to I mean, one of the recent ones that everyone likes to quote is the Longland 2016 study. They even put a 40% deficit. So, I mean, if you think about that, if someone is eating 2,000 calories a day, all of a sudden you're eating 1,200. Okay. And uh, what about cardio? So, uh, cardio, uh, as long as they weren't going, it, we controlled for it in that they were allowed to do it, but not very much. Okay. Um, so if they were doing more than a couple sessions a week, we um, had we excluded them, that okay. kind of thing. Um, luckily, uh, most of the people that we enrolled um, were, like me, hated yeah. cardio. Um, <laughs> team no cardio, so yeah. uh, convincing them to just stick to the weight training program wasn't the hardest thing in the world. <laughs> Have no fear. Like... <laughs> Now, did you did you guys equate for neat or anything like that? Like, was it a step count? Um, so we wanted we wanted to use like the Excel um, various accelerometers that we have um, to equate for neat, but we had another professor that was actually doing that with their study and just okay. saw that it wasn't um, giving them the best data, and so uh, we just decided to just. Um, use a lot of questionnaires and constant contact with them throughout the study. So like I was at every single training session. So I was talking to every person like every single day when they came in, saw what they were doing, um, that kind of stuff. And if they did anything, they did um, track it on my fitness pal. So I could see like if they were um, out, you know, running a bunch or playing like flag football, doing any of the intramurals, that kind of stuff. Going on hikes and stuff. Yeah. Because my fitness pal has a step tracker built into it, doesn't it? Uh, it, it does, but also, you know, if you go into it, you can um, uh, just put in that you did like an hour of running or yeah. something like that. Yeah, and um, so um, we were able to kind of look at that stuff. How many participants did you have? So we started with 32, and then we had 30 people finish the study. So for people that, you know, a lot of these listeners have never done research, that's huge. I mean, you got to think you're there at Pretty much every session, right? I was, uh, minus a couple here and there where somebody's covering down, but yeah, I was there for all but maybe two training sessions. Just because for those, I was at um, a conference presenting some other research. Yeah, but, and uh, the the training protocol you mentioned uh, very powerlifting style. Um, can you, they were still doing like, you know, assistance lift. They were still doing like bicep curls and still movements that we might call kind of bodybuilder-ish as well. Yeah. You know, do you want to talk about the protocol at all a little bit? Sure. Um, so like I said, it was uh, four weeks. We used a typical kind of linear periodization, but there was an undul um, underlying kind of daily undulating periodization model throughout the week. Um, so they always would come in and start. Our two main strength measures were uh, bench press and leg press. Would have loved to use squat. Being a powerlifter myself, I would have loved to use squat. But especially if people that aren't used to squatting, you're going to spend half the time just teaching them how to do it, which is why. College kids can't squat. Exactly. <laughs> Very true. And you'll get tons of people that are going, no, that's depth. I'm like, sure. <laughs> um, 
So that's one of the reasons, if you're for any of your listeners, if you ever dive into the literature, you almost always see leg press instead of something like squatting or something like that. But so we always started with uh, our main lifts, which were our bench press and our squat, and then went on to some kind of um, horizontal rowing exercise, then some kind of uh, usually uh, vertical pressing or some kind of shoulder exercise. And then a leg superset and a, and a arm superset after that. And the uh, main lifts were trained very similar to if anyone wants to go look it up. It's very the progression was very similar to Helms 2018, which was a cool paper kind of looking at differences between percentage based training versus uh, repetitions in reserve. Um, and so the main lifts were based off of percentages that followed um, a basic daily undulating periodization model, and everything else after that was uh, trained to one to two repetitions in reserve. So we made sure um, at typically uh, you know, the eight to twelve, you know, good old hypertrophy hypertrophy range that we like to always say. Um, even though that's a discussion for another day. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, but now the the repetitions reserve was just kind of nice to make sure we were kind of auto regulating. People were progressing the way they sh- they could and really pushing themselves, making sure they were staying at the right intensity and that kind of thing. Cool. So you mentioned body composition, and then um, you mentioned strength and performance as well, right? Yeah. So how do you measure those? So like I said, with the body composition, I measured that through that four compartment model in which we did uh, DEXA. Uh, BIA, which is if any, um, any of your listeners are familiar with, that's like that bathroom scale that you stand on that gives you the body fat percentage. We basically have a really, really, really fancy version of that. Um, so we use that in com- combination with DEXA and combination with BODPOD as a way to uh, do what we call a four compartment model, mm-hmm. uh, as well as actually looking at direct um, changes of muscle size in the leg and the bicep by actually taking pictures of them with the ultrasound. And then I got to spend a ton of hours just circling out the images and to actually tell people how big their muscle was. And then uh, for performance, we did um, uh, bench press and leg press, single repetition maximum. So we worked them up to just basically to see how strong they were on those two different exercises. And then as well as muscular endurance, so then whatever their 1RM was, we then put 65% on the bar and then just saw how many reps they could get. Okay, cool. And yeah, that four compartment model, um, you know, because you always see people on Facebook, Instagram, and they're like, Texas gold standard, hydrostatics gold standard. Some people may even claim bod pod is gold standard. Um, What makes the four compartment so special? Like, what does it measure? So the nice thing is, is we're taking into, with a four compartment model, you're taking into account a ton of different things that the other ones don't take into account. Like if you're looking at just um, BIA, one of the things that can highly affect that is like hydration status. So total body water, um, because that one's just measuring how fast a current goes through you. Then um, DEXA, interesting things about DEXA that a lot of people don't realize is that it can be highly affected by... Um, things like uh, good old pancake. Um, <laughs> that's Frank. Oh, that's Frank. Oh, Frank. 
But um, DEXA can be highly affected by um, things like carbohydrate status of the diet. Uh, it's, um, a lot. That's why uh, a lot of the old ketogenic style studies are kind of interesting that um, use DEXA because you can manipulate it a lot that way. So, uh, and then BODPOD, all that's measuring is uh, total body volume. So that one's basically working like the tank that we would dunk people in, except it's working on air displacement instead of water displacement. So we're taking into account body volumes, seeing if their overall body size is actually changing, bone mineral content from DEXA so that we can actually purse out how much of the lean mass is, is bone and as opposed to skeletal and stuff like that. And then um, taking into account hydration status as well with the BIA. So we're able to account for a lot more things than any one measure is no, able no. to by itself. Well, that's huge and really comprehensive considering a lot of stuff that seems to be surfacing about whether or not you're really measuring like lean mass changes and stuff, right? Yeah, all the fun stuff coming out of um, Dr. Robert's lab at uh, yeah. uh, Auburn. There's some cool stuff coming out of there. Cool. So uh, was there anything else you wanted to add about the study design? Um. Um, was there, what about, uh, the, uh, participants like inclusion criteria? Yeah. So we wanted everybody who were, they had to be currently training two to four times per week for at least six months. Uh, the vast majority of people were, um, college students there that were training. So, uh, so, uh, is definitely part of that came down to feasibility because one of the things like that you find if you ever want to try to study, um, really well, highly trained populations is no one wants to stop what they're doing <laughs> for an extended period of time. So sometimes you have to go off of what you can feasibly get. But the nice thing is we, a lot of the literature is just an untrained people. So, you know, with untrained people, you do anything to them, they're going to get better. Uh, we at least took that out a bit and okay. got people with some training experience. So you probably call them recreationally trained. Yeah. Or, yeah. Cool. Um, so what would you expect to find? So um, if diving back into the literature, when you see some of the changes that a lot of people expect uh, to see with like the weight loss and everything, uh, one of the big aspects of that is they don't control for diet most of the time. And so with them not controlling for diet, ironically, most, I mean, not ironically, expectedly, the intermittent fasting group typically is eating less calories, less protein, that kind of thing. Like if you dive into that Tinsley study um, that a lot of people, uh, that was kind of the first um, intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding study in resistance training populations. Um, one of the things they were also looking at was does uh, food, uh, do people's diets change on fasting days versus non-fasting days? And so they did see that on those fasting days, on average, people were eating over 600 calories less per day. And as well as, as it was about uh, 83 grams of carbs, 15 grams of fat, and about 20 grams of protein, equating to about 0.4 grams per kilo per day. And so a lot of time, so that leads us to think that while there might be some good um, potential like hormonal metabolic things going on with fasting, the overall driving factor is going to be the calorie deficit that intermittent fasting uh, creates. Mm. And, um, and that's what, and 
that's kind of shown up in the literature again with most of those that do report uh, food intake, whether or not they're controlling for it, show that most of the time the intermittent fasting group uh, is eating significantly less. Mm. And that's, um, I know if you're anything like, if any of your listeners are anything like us, you're thinking, you know, eight hours, I can still put a ton of food down in eight hours. I know Paul and I can. But um, uh, interestingly enough that um, surprisingly people, the first meal they use to break their fast, on average, they'll increase the amount of food they eat a bit. But then in subsequent meals, uh, they kind of stick to what they would normally eat uh, subconsciously, which has been shown uh, even a couple uh, couple times. I think the Johnstone 2002 study, they even showed that after a 36-hour fast, people only uh, increased their calorie consumption at the first meal that they broke their fast with. So um, that's why one of the big things is trying to get more studies in intermittent fasting where they actually control for calories. so that we can really see, is it fasting that's doing something, or is it just that people are eating less? Yeah, because that's so. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, and so, um, so our prevailing theory going into this, our hypothesis was that it was the calorie deficit that was driving a lot of the stuff that we would see. So by control controlling for uh, protein intake, so you know. Um, if you're controlling for calories but not for protein intake, you know, if you're looking at resistance training populations and you're worried about losing lean muscle mass or something like that, then that was you got to control for protein, um, which even a lot of the studies that control for calories didn't necessarily control for protein. Um, and then controlling for calories so that we can, you know, parse out is it intermittent fasting or is it just a calorie deficit? And so our main theory was that. Um, we wouldn't really see any differences between groups just because uh, we're controlling for those two main big aspects. Um, I wanted to, because you mentioned protein, that's something Mm -hmm. we didn't cover. Uh, How much protein did you have them eat through the study? So they were all eating 1.8 grams per kg per day. Okay. And how's that line up in the literature for, um, you know, kind of maximizing your gains or muscle retention on a diet? Yeah. So that falls right in, in line with everything. So uh, one of the big papers that everyone likes to talk about uh, is the uh, Morton 2017 paper in which they recommended at least 1.6 grams per kg to maximize um, muscle gains. There's also a couple other ones um, such as like um, Stu Phillips, who if anyone wants to look into protein research, he's one of the most prolific protein researchers out there right now. Um, he's got a couple like 2014 papers recommending at least 1.2 uh, to maybe as high as 2, especially in a deficit. Um, and so ideally we would have liked to do something like uh, 2.2 or something, so that 1 gram per pound of body weight um, that uh, we always like to hear because that's also one of my big recommendations. But then we had to look at feasibility. So if we got – so for instance, if we gave people you know 1 gram per pound – but we're trying to ask them to fit it all into an eight-hour window. Uh, if you get somebody that's like 200 pounds and they're eating, you know, three times and all of a sudden every meal is like 65, 70 grams of protein, and then, with, is, then you're going to run into compliance issues and that kind of stuff. So we kind of split the difference, which is still a good at that 1.8, which is still – um, above what a lot of the recommendations in the literature are. Yeah. Um, 
So we figured it was a nice kind of middle ground. No doubt, no doubt. Yeah, I think the serious bodybuilders would be like, what, 200 grams of protein, easy. But, yeah, yeah, I think a lot of us working with people in real life that aren't already eating absurd amounts of protein, it can be really hard to get them. Um, Yeah, it was kind of funny because some of the people at that 1.8 only had to eat like 120, 130 grams, and they were coming to me at the (laughs) beginning just like, it's so hard to fit all this protein (laughs) in. I was like, really? Yeah. We're already giving you 50. Cool. So uh, just a little recap, you know, um, so you're saying, you know, there are some people who may just inherently eat less, you mm-hmm. know, looking at some of the previous literature. And so they end up getting uh, potential benefits and fat loss and such when they do intermittent fasting. And your hypothesis is that, you know, if you control for calories that you may not see this difference. Yeah. Pretty much that the calories are going to be the overall driving factor of body composition changes. Okay, cool. Um, so how did that line up with your findings? So uh, interestingly enough, uh, was one of the rare times in science that we were actually right. Because <laughs> uh, if any of you, anyone likes to get into research, you'll find uh, a lot of times you find stuff you didn't exactly expect to find. But um, yeah, so ours did kind of line up with with that, that if, uh, when looking at uh, overall fat loss and stuff like that, uh, when by controlling for that calorie deficit, at least for that short period of time, we were able to, we didn't see any differences between the two groups for um, overall body composition, so fat loss, um, muscle retention, or uh strength performance or any, or decreases in body changes in body fat percentage any of that um, endurance either uh yeah no changes for endurance no differences between the two groups in endurance okay okay so cool. so that was so we can say that um control your calories have fun that's, yeah. our, that's our main kind of conclusion. Did today. you guys do any questionnaires on uh, maybe appetite or anything to see if maybe the intermittent fasting group felt like they were less hungry or? We did. Um, one, we did, uh, but all of those those were done actually during their feeding window because they filled those out before they came in every single time to work out. So one thing that would be really interesting, so they didn't show any differences there, but one mm. thing that could definitely have affected that was they were always coming in after they ate. So if they're mm. filling those out, like after they ate, that can be kind of artificially changing that. So it would be interesting is um, doing some of those questionnaires um, during the actual like kind of fasting window, like mm. first thing in the morning, at night, something like that. Because um, there's starting to see, see more and more research that it might actually affect hunger levels as well. In fact, there's a really good paper, a really, really good paper um, by uh, Sutton uh, 2018, in which they actually showed some decreased hunger in intermittent fasting after about uh, five weeks. So that would have been uh, really interesting, but. Overall, how was hunger just across the board? Because I could imagine 20% deficit just coming straight into that out of a cut. Yeah. I mean, were participants like complaining about being hungry or did they feel like the food was sufficient? So at, all I really got with that was for the first week, while people were kind of adjusting to it, the only real complaints we got was people having to wait till noon or wait till one or something like that to start eating, uh, especially when, you know, they some of them that had like real world jobs and not students, you know, people like to bring stuff into the office and all the cakes and all that kind of stuff would get 
I had one participant who worked at a bagel company and would always show up and like, man, they brought more food to the office today and I couldn't uh, have any. Uh, but um, And that was just with the fasting group. Yeah, that was just really with the fasting group. Surprisingly, we didn't really get that many complaints about the actual diet in and of itself. But most of the complaints about having to wait um, subsided after uh, the first week or so. Okay. Um, so most of the people by the end of the study um, waiting till that period until noon or one actually wasn't that big of a deal for them. Okay, so just a little in the beginning, so some people might want to consider that, not just yeah. if and they really want to give it a shot. Yeah, and that's that's one thing our personal experience and a lot of other people that I've worked with with it can all say that um, the first week, two weeks you do it can probably suck um, just because having to wait for so long if you're used to eating really, really often, mm-hmm. but then that kind of goes away and you just kind of get used to it. And so there are no differences between groups for changes in lean body mass or uh, fat mass, um, strength and performance, um, but overall, you know, did we see increases in lean mass, body fat, weight, uh, performance? Yeah, so um, overall, everyone got more jacked and got stronger. Oh, yeah. So I'd say that was successful. Everyone, <laughs> especially leading into spring break, a lot of people enjoyed getting getting leaner. But uh, so, yeah, on average, everyone, uh, body fat percentage went down um, and strength went up. So we saw some good increases in bench press strength, some really good increases in leg press strength, even over even though it was only four weeks while still on a deficit. Um, and yeah, everyone's body fat percentage went down, everyone lost fat, uh, and for the most part, everyone kind of maintained lean mass on average. Okay. We saw maintenance of lean mass, which was really good that... Um, we can see those because a lot of people are always worried, especially with with fasting, that um, if I'm not eating all the time, I'm going to start um, losing all this muscle yeah. because you know I'm going to go into starvation mode after two hours. But um, you show that even with daily kind of 16-hour fast, you can still kind of yeah. maintain muscle as long as your uh, protein is high enough. And I'm assuming if you, you know, look at each participant individually, there probably were some that gained lean mass, maybe some that maybe lost a little bit, but then yeah. the mean change. Yeah, we had some people that gained a little bit, some people that probably, that lost a little bit, but when we look at the overall average of all all yeah. individuals in each, 16 in each group and the 30 overall, then, uh, yeah, people maintained. No um, So, you know, with looking at your study, and now being really familiar with a lot of the previous research, like you said, there wasn't very much in trained populations. Does this challenge any of that previous research or any of the conclusions drawn from the previous research? Uh, a little bit. It challenges that Morrow 2016 study a bit because they found that even when controlling for calories at um, in a eucaloric state, so basically maintenance calories is what they try to keep their, their individuals at, um, they still saw that uh, the intermittent fasting group lost weight, and the um, not the normal diet group um, stayed the same. So we did kind of challenge that a little bit, in that we found it was the same between the two groups. Um, so that's definitely kind of interesting there. Uh, that's pretty much the only study that we really have to con- to compare it against. Uh-huh. That's really kind of like as close to one-to-one to ours as you can get. Okay. Um, but, 
But I, I think the big aspect of it is just it's it's ours is a little bit more in line of what you would physiologically expect. Yeah. I would say um, I can't really speculate on why their findings are different mm-hmm. than ours, but uh, that is uh, kind of we did kind of find some different results from them. Okay. Are there any uh, big limitations or you think people are going to maybe like hammer you on looking over the study or things that you may have just done differently looking back? Um, so, I mean, timeline is always a big thing, only being four weeks uh, with the night, but that also shows like, for instance, different applications of using like short term if you want to, you know, cut weight to make power, a powerlifting meet or something like that. Um, so that that four week is always going to be a limitation. Uh, looking back, it would have been while a lot of our people were definite were trained, um, having some kind of um, strength guideline that they'd have to meet to get in would have been pretty nice. Um, then, I mean, those are those are kind of the big ones. That, I mean, anyone's I th- I think if I see anything, every anyone's going to give us some hassle about okay and nothing uh well i mean obviously i'm sure there are things that you would change but any like just big ones that you're like oh i wish i included this or i wish i did this different yeah that's that strength guideline yeah i really like to include that um the activity monitors so we could look at things like you know um outside activity uh that would have been really nice but uh, I did all this in one semester, and I kind of wanted to graduate. So. Uh, this is a this is a beast of a project. You don't, for the listeners, you don't see studies like this done as thesis very often, like ever. I think, like <laughs> I can't think of any, but yeah, yeah um, he can, he can attest. I was pretty much there like 19 hours a day. Yeah, I got the pretty much every single day was getting to the lab about four and then leaving training at like, like he gave up his own training over that time <laughs> like yeah it was you were working like 16 hour days to crush this pretty much. Were, you, were you fasting for those 16 hours <laughs> <laughs> oh man Did it's you, only fair right you, ha- you have to <laughs> you don't get to eat until the study's done exactly um, yeah cool man so did you have any questions you want to ask over the protocol or anything ryan I had one, and I'm actually glad that you brought up the uh, the question about the time frame. If you stretch this out to 8, 12, 16 weeks, or maybe even months or a year, do you suspect that you would see any difference in the results? Um, I wouldn't ex- I wouldn't expect to, uh, just because, uh, I mean, you know, that Moro study was 8 weeks, which is one thing you could see, but we didn't see any, even any, like, different trends going on at the four weeks. So it wasn't even that, like, there were differences. It just didn't reach statistical significance. It was, like, looking at the actual numbers, it was, like, almost exactly the same. Yeah. Um, And just um, talking with some other researchers, like, um, who I'm going to be, like, I'm going to be continuing some of this stuff uh, in the fall when I'm going to start my doctorate at uh, Texas Tech under uh, Dr. Tinsley, who's one of the, foremost researchers in the country on intermittent fasting and they're finishing up some stuff that um there were some some kind of longer things that i think would kind of back that up as well but i still um i know some of the general gists of it but not the actual deep things and so uh he'll have that published soon hopefully do you think uh in terms of bringing up like the length of time that the uh, muscle protein synthesis nerds might 
might like try and disagree with you in terms of maximally stimulating MPS more times throughout a day or anything like that. What do you think about that? Yeah, so that's always the interesting part with, I know that's what, like, uh, for any of your listeners that are really familiar with it, you always hear, you know, take the, take 10 grams of branch chains while you're fasting, like every two hours or around your workouts or any of that stuff. But interestingly, there's there's a lot of, a uh, fair amount of research showing that you don't see changes, in, necessarily negative changes in um, 24-hour protein metabolism. Um, and so a lot of that increased protein degradation doesn't even happen until about 60 to 70 hours of fasting. So uh, a little like 16-hour fast isn't going to, you know, make you go catabol- too catabolic that you're going to lose all your gains uh, so yeah, that's always that's always the fun part, which is. But again, uh, the studies that showed that there was a difference uh, that there were any differences in lean mass. Once again, they weren't controlling for protein. So the group that had the lower um, muscle mass was always eating less protein. Mm. So like for instance, in the Tinsley study, it was 1.4 versus one gram in the fasting group, or you see mm. that you know all the time and all the and all the other studies where that's one of the big that's one of the reasons that a hard thing for me was that I want to control for protein to really look at the actual like muscle changes no no so yeah that'd be a huge thing for people practicing um because you know protein in itself can be really filling if it you know has a positive some people may look at it as a negative impact uh impact on appetite if you can't get your protein in so yeah cool um was there anything else before we get into some of the Instagrammer questions? Uh, I don't think so. Actually, wait. If you remember the details, what was the sample size on the Morrow study? Uh, 32. Oh, so pretty much the exact same? Yeah. Man, that's, that's interesting that they found that those results. Yeah, that's, always, that's the interesting one. That's the study that a lot of intermittent fasting proponents like to bring up. Because of course. It looks... It looks great. I mean, they controlled for meal time. I mean, in the normal diet group, they ate their meals at 8 a.m., 1 p.m., and 8 p.m. And the fasting group, it was 1, 4, and 8. And the, you know, everyone was eating roughly about 3,000 calories. At least they reported that they were eating about 3,000 calories. And because that's the thing that you always have to say with these free living studies. I mean, as you guys as coaches know, just because something, some people write something down yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that's exactly what they did. Very true. Um, yeah. So at least all the participants reported that they ate um, 3,000 calories and 1.9 grams per kg. But yet, um, interestingly enough, they, they saw that decrease in body fat and the intermittent fasting group. So mm. so. It's curious, and it's be interesting if uh, more literature coming out in the future kind of supports their findings or kind of our findings. You know. Actually, uh, I wanted to – did you measure any uh, hormones or anything like that? Because I know there are a mm-hmm. lot of claims, um, you know, about growth hormone or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, so we didn't measure growth, but we did measure testosterone, cortisol, adiponectin, leptin, and ghrelin. Um, so we're still in the process of finishing up uh, some of those. Um, so we didn't um, uh, we didn't see necessarily any differences with testosterone. Um, interestingly enough, there was actually a difference with cortisol, but that wouldn't really that shouldn't affect most of the differences that we saw. And cortisol going up with dieting is completely normal to find. Um, and 
The interesting one would be if we saw the differences in adiponectin, uh, because that's one thing that has been shown to go up with weight loss, um, has been shown to go up even more um, than expected with weight loss and fasting protocols. And uh, I don't know how familiar people are with adiponectin, but it's a really cool adipokine, so it's a hormone that the, the, your fat cells release, and it can affect um, things like uh, energy expenditure in the brain, insulin sensitivity, that kind of thing. Um, and so they found a significant, in the Moro, they found a significant increase in adiponectin. So I just finished running that yesterday, so I still have to look at all the, um, the data on it. Mm -hmm. So that one will be definitely an interesting one to look at. That was one of the things that um, hypothesized was one of the differences was the increase in adiponectin to lead to the differences between, in fat loss between groups. Okay, cool. So I uh, want to get into the questions that you got from Instagram. Yeah, yeah let's do it. All right, got them pulled up here. All right, so we'll rapid fire these. A couple of them I think that you'll kind of be able to answer in like a sentence or two. Like, no, that's stupid. Shut up. That kind of <laughs> stuff. So feel free. Don't hold back. These people are my followers, so they're used to being abused. Um, Psychological damage. I'll go full exactly. bio on them. Perfect. That's what we're looking for. <laughs> Anything for clicks. Um, any benefit to intermittent fasting for those with pre-diabetes or family history of diabetes? I'm going to assume that this is type 2 diabetes that he's talking about. Yeah, because type 1, definitely. You don't. Bad idea. That's yeah. how you have a bad time. Yeah. Uh, type 2, uh, for pre-diabetes especially, there definitely could potentially be. Even, uh, for instance, that um, Sutton 2018 paper, which is a really good... Um, one of the most well-controlled, it was almost a metabolic ward study, which in that one, uh, a metabolic ward study for any of your listeners that aren't familiar with, that's basically where we have the participants who actually like come live there and we control like everything that they're doing. So everything they're eating, their activity, that kind of stuff. But um, they actually did show some benefits uh, in uh, calorie maintenance from doing some intermittent fasting um, for both uh, um for a glucose response to or insulin response to a meal and then there's the Hutchinson 2019 paper that showed some benefits to intermittent fasting for um, resting fasting glucose levels even independent of weight loss so that's one of the so that's one of the interesting things and in trying to figure out some underlying mechanisms of why we might actually see that but especially for the clinical aspects if we're looking beyond just um, getting jacked and strong then uh, intermittent fasting could definitely have some applications for that, um, especially for like um, insulin and glucose control. Sweet, yeah, that's kind of it's kind of what I expected, or kind of what I've read in the research is that it will improve uh, like blood glucose and glucose control and insulin sensitivity and all that stuff. But I've never really understood why, and it sounds like still kind of trying to flesh out some of the mechanisms there. Yeah, so I'm um, still trying to figure out a bit. Some of the prevailing theories are, like I mentioned, with increases in adiponectin, which can definitely do that, which has been seen to rise in fasting. Um, there's been some theories that fasting can raise like AMPK levels inside the muscle, which if you look into that mechanism can you know, upregulate GLUT4 translocation, so which is what allows glucose into the muscle cell. Um, so there may be something going on there. Um, and then in that actually that um, Sutton paper, they uh, showed increased beta cell function, so improved beta cell function, 
which uh, could potentially be playing into it as well. So there, there's a couple theories. We just haven't nailed down exactly like which one is completely right yet. And it could be a combination of everything. So, yeah. Wait. All right. This next one upsets me. People ask me this all the time, and it's just extremely it bothers me. Um, any benefits to intermittent fasting during a bulking or massing or like a weight gain phase? Just why? Yeah, um, that's the biggest question. <laughs> why? Why? But, um, yeah, I would say if you're trying to bulk or mass gain, I would not recommend intermittent fasting. But if, for whatever reason, you were dead set on it and you really wanted to intermittent fast, um, I, would prob- I wouldn't recommend the daily time-restricted feeding. I would recommend um, the whole day fasting, which is a, one of the other styles under that umbrella term of intermittent fasting, which is basically um, once, maybe twice a week, um, you would fast for 24 hours. So basically one day you would fit all your meals in, say, before uh, 6 o'clock, and then the next day you would have dinner. And so um, that would at least, uh, throughout uh, most of the days of the week, you'd still be able to kind of eat normally um, and then just eat kind of heavy on the one day. And then having that uh, one day of the one of the reduced calorie intake when you finish your 24-hour fast um, may be a way, I don't know, um, so you can eat more on your other days, but I... That that would be a stretch for me to say if I if I was just mm-hmm. talking to somebody that just for whatever reason was just dead set that I'm gonna intermittent fast on this bulk, mm-hmm. like that would be kind of the one workaround I would think about. But yeah, most oh. of the time, if you're trying to gain muscle, if you're if you're trying to you know bulk, just eat normally. The one thing I think, and I feel like this would be temporary even in this population, but maybe with females. Uh, coming out of a diet, still struggling with hunger, um, just for potentially if they get that appetite, uh, satiating benefit from fitting all their food within an eight hour window or six hour or 10 hour or whatever. Um, but you know, with the practical application of coaching, I found as you get into further into bulking, like getting or massing or, you know, improving, a lot of females tend to struggle actually to eat all their food. And that's the one thing every week I'm like, Hey, like you're under over the week by like 700 calories, like get those in, you know? So yeah, you're already dealing with where most times people are having a hard time getting all the food in and then you want to restrict your time that you're going to get it in and make it even harder on yourself. So you're just kind of compounding difficulties there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure that time restricted eating or fasting, it really has much of a, a calorie increasing benefit it's more of even with what you said paul coming out of a show with that you're still trying to use it as like a calorie controlling or a calorie reducing tool instead of an like a a a massing tool so actually i won't say that that question upsets me it always just confuses me like you're asking a very incorrect question so i'm very limited in the answer that i can give you but why is a very good answer i like that answer Yeah, yeah so um and that's, that's where I think it, time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting really comes into good application or at least application to most people is that a way to um, help kind of control calories like that. So maybe if we're, we're talking about maybe someone starting, like you are saying, like uh, coming out of a diet, so you're starting to put them on like a, uh, some kind of reverse diet. 
you know, initially out of a show, um, then they might have some ways there to, if they're still on low amounts of food, mm-hmm. get those increased satiating effects. Or like, um, I think the the real benefit of it is uh, maybe if you're like deep into a prep or something like that, switching to an intermittent fasting style diet, so you can have larger meals, yeah. um, a little bit more satiating meals, and while still staying on those lower calories. But yeah, you always with any of these, um, you always have to think that they're tools in the toolbox and why are you looking to apply it? And And I guess with the results of your study, because I think where that question comes from is everybody's looking for that unicorn of like staying lean while, you know, gaining as much size and strength as possible. Um, And, you know, with the results of your study and probably the results of upcoming studies, we're going to see, well, you just got to control for calories. Yeah. So that's me. It kind of fits into the next question here. It says, uh, what are the main physiological advantages offered by intermittent fasting why, by which people have success? So why, when people are fasting, why are they having success and losing weight? Because you hear people say it all the time. I started intermittent fasting. I lost a ton of weight. Why are they losing a ton of weight? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of like what I talked about earlier with you're cutting off that meal and people just aren't making up those calories in later meals. Um, and that's been shown time and time again with like the one that everyone likes to talk about the most is the Sto- I believe that's how you pronounce his name. At least that's how I've been saying it. No one's yelled at me yet. But um, uh, the Stoat 2007 study where they actually even attempted to make it calorie controlled by they split three meals per day or one meal over a four hour period and they gave the participants all their food and had them sit there and try to eat it. Even while doing that, um, people in the intermittent fasting group uh, or the time-restricted feeding group ate about 65 calories less per day because they were they just couldn't fit all the food in. And um, when they even talked to the participants after that, they, um, they said uh, if they had been given the choice, they would have eaten even less because they were like force feeding oh. themselves to get to that even that 65 calories just couldn't get that so, last oreo in, no. dude. I, it's disappointing i just get the uh was it ultimate stuff just throw one of those down here you go ultimate have you seen that uh-uh. it's even bigger than like mega stuff oh it's, ultimate stuffed oh yeah where it's mostly just filling yeah it's yeah like 200 calories stuff. per cookie or something america like america is a beautiful like, place that. I need. I didn't know that was a thing. I need to go find that immediately after this. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm trying to not get Paul to gain very much weight. You're not helping. All right, we'll we'll uh, keep him out of the lab for a little bit. There, that'll help. But um, but yeah. So that's and like I mentioned that Johnstone study as well. You know, people only increase at that first that first meal, and then some of the other ones coming out more recently is uh, one one direction that intermittent fasting is starting to move that I find is actually really interesting and would like to dive into farther with future studies, is um, timing of that window. So whether they're eating like later in the day or earlier in the day, and uh, one of the studies that uh, found some interesting stuff they used earlier in the day uh, when compared to later in the day. However, they didn't control for any kind of, um, once again, they didn't control for diet or calorie consumption or anything like that again. And if you think about it, when most people are overeating um, is around dinner time, you know, they're at home chilling, watching Game of Thrones, whatever it is. Um, Just saying that because final episodes tomorrow. 
I haven't been watching it, but he's been talking oh, to yeah. off about it. Um, and you know, the grazing and all the stuff that goes on late at night, you cut, especially you cut that out, then all of a sudden, um, most people's calorie consumptions are likely going to plummet. No doubt. Yeah, I guess I guess that's kind of why I struggle with that method is because I know when I've used intermittent fasting in the past, I use it especially because I would be so hungry at night. And so from an appetite controlling perspective, that was better for me. And I think uh, just overall with the question, that's something that we need to consider with all these things people say. People say all the time, cutting carbs is what works. I cut my carbs and I lost all this weight. Well, you reduced your caloric intake by a significant amount. Same thing with the intermittent fasting and all these crazy diet fads coming out where people aren't really tracking or controlling for calories. Yeah, it's just basically where people are tricking themselves into calorie deficits, deficits most of the time, whether it's keto, paleo, carnivore, intermittent fasting, um, vegan veganism, whatever it is, you know, the, we're all working under the same physiological processes here. Eat less, move more, then fat comes off. They always say it's not that simple. <laughs> it's hormones, man. <laughs> um, all right, this is actually a question that I had. I'm, so, I'm glad someone asked this. Um, the threshold, what is the threshold for breaking a fast? Is it more calorie or macronutrient driven? Because I had my fiance listen, she had me listen to this podcast where they were talking, I forget what it's called. It has some insane name. Um, and they were talking about how they fast and then they go and work out. And then after they have, after their workout, they like sit down and have like an MCT oil smoothie. And because it's all fats, it doesn't break the fast. Is there any truth to that? I know the answer is no, but let's hear why that's the dumbest statement ever. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it, by definition, any calorie consumption is breaking fast just because the definition of a fast is um, abstaining from all calories for a defined period of time. So, um, yeah, <laughs> whether... Uh, you always hear that, well, if you just have protein or if you have fats or something like that, you're still staying in that state. Um, and so, you know, you're still completely fine. But especially the one that always makes me laugh is the protein one, just because, um, well, as long as you avoid carbs, carbs are insulinogenic. And so, you know, that's really what breaks the fast. Well, then you start realizing that protein causes insulin release as well and all that fun stuff. So there, that goes out the window. But um, is there, like, a threshold? Um, I would – the current definitions in the literature would, would support that any calorie would break the fast. Now, um, does a calorie – is the effect necessarily the same if you break it with all protein or if you break it with all um, fats or all carbohydrates? We don't necessarily know. We haven't done – um, a lot of we haven't done necessarily like fasting research where we then fed people protein or then fed people carbohydrates and saw what happened. Um, but I would definitely say that, yeah, if you're working out and then you still go have a bunch of fat, I mean, we already know that, you know, fat in the post-workout meal already inhibits muscle protein synthesis anyway. So why would you want to do that? Um, and especially in a point where you already have. Now I got to throw out all my bulletproof coffee, dude. <laughs> <laughs> only if it's the bulletproof brand then you're good then you're good if it's just the regular mct oil then you're screwed oh man that's what i get now now what about some some other stuff what about something like bcaa's will that also break a fast so yeah um 
that's one of the next studies we want to do is actually looking at uh, ranch chain amino acids just because you see that recommendation so much. Like if you're going to go work out um, while you're fasting, take 10 grams before and then 10 grams after and all that stuff. We would still, um, every researcher that I've ever talked to would say that uh, it still constitutes breaking a fast because whether people like to admit it or not, they do have calories. It is a smaller amount of calories. Uh, but they do have calories, and you're breaking a fast with calories, especially um, some of the most insulinogenic amino acids out there are branched-chain amino acids. Yep. So um, I would definitely say that would constitute breaking a fast. So fun fact, um, I don't know if maybe you don't want me to say this, but this study was actually intended to be a study using essential amino acids yeah initially we were going to try to look at that one of that exact question with taking um essential amino acids so we know that um essential amino an essential amino acid complex is much better than uh, just a branch chain amino acid complex if you're looking at supplementing with it and so we were going to give people essential amino acids during the fasting window but we had a lot of stuff kind of come up with some of the suppliers that we were working with and then we ran into a time restriction so we ended up switching to this study now, even more obscure than BCAAs, what about something like like a sugar alcohol, like a xylitol or an erythritol, one of these artificial sweeteners or sugar alcohols that you see? Well, specifically sugar alcohols because they actually have calories. Would those also break the fast because calories? Um, I would say so, yeah. Um, I wouldn't necessarily worry about too many artificial sweeteners um, just because those ones um, – are the calories from them are so minute and they use so little of them which is how they get away with saying there's zero calories um because you know they're usually like a million times sweeter than sugar so they can use like one milligram instead of like 60 grams Uh and get away with it so are crystal light and coke zero and diet coke drinkers during their fast are safe I would say they're so, not yes. breaking the laws of no. intermittent fasting. Okay. No, so that's what that's why we always tell you can have as long as it's a zero calorie drink, you're fine. Um, tea, diet, diet sodas. If you're looking at the energy drinks, I would just say any of the um, ones that are zero calorie. And I always count that uh, by macro. Okay. As uh, so, if you like, if you look at any of the ones that they can get kind of tricky. If you look at some of the energy drinks on the back, it'll say. Um, it's zero calories, but there's still like two grams of carbohydrates in it somehow. The F three triol or whatever. Yeah, erythritol. Erythritol. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so, so, can I drink Walden Farms ranch dressing and still be fasting? <laughs> um. The whole thing. Yes. Only it's, only if it's the whole thing. Okay. Yeah, oh. I want some Pepto Bismol too. <laughs> Dirty boy likes to drink his ranch dressing. I can get behind that. <laughs> Whatever gets you through a cut, man. Man. I've seen people use enough of that stuff to where they're basically drinking it. It's, yeah. Paul, have you ever tried the uh, the Walden Farms cinnamon raisin peanut butter? No, I stay oh, okay. Dude, you got to try it at least once. I'll, I'll, I'll Venmo you the like $8 that it's worth because you're literally going to taste the tiniest amount of it and be like, yeah, I want my money back right now. The, the other day, Cam said he got like, I think the chocolate's maybe, wait. Oh, he he got got the chocolate is so bad. He yeah. got marshmallow and he said he like tried it and immediately threw it away. Oh, <laughs> so, so bad. It's like acidic. I don't know what's in it. 
but let me just it's say, like car tire, burnt car tire, fucking that tangy mayo they've got though is on point. The tangy tangy mayo is not too bad. I liked their um, the caramel one's not bad. The Alfredo is not very good. The Alfredo is kind of like watered down, kind of like jizzy. It's kind of like got that watered down semen texture. I'm yeah. not familiar. <laughs> not familiar. <laughs> you don't have to lie, Paul. <laughs> This is gonna be on the internet. Um, yes. And don't forget. No, um, <laughs> dude, it's getting crazy. I didn't know, realize there were so many. It's almost kind of scary. Yeah, I, I will say I did like their um, their pancake syrup. I thought that one wasn't too bad. That one's dank. Yeah, it's good. But uh, yeah, no, some it's it's getting crazy out there, especially with that market. What are they but, using? Like this? But all of those are fasting friendly, right? Go um, by the mac. Go by the macros. Go by the macros. Just keep, just keep, keep in mind your serving size. <laughs> Takes seven years to leave your body out here. <laughs> this is a part of you, your genetic makeup forever. All right, last question, and I know you're gonna be able to nail this one super quick. Pros and cons using intermittent fasting the week leading into a competition. So let's say someone is getting ready for a powerlifting or maybe like a weightlifting meet. Would you use intermittent fasting in that last week to get off any additional weight that needs to come off or would your best recommendation be to stick with the current diet? Um, I would normally say uh, stick with the current diet that got you there, but it can be used. Uh, if I was going to use it, I would mostly use it uh, like the day before weigh-ins kind of thing to just drop a little bit of extra water because um, the uh, federation that I compete in uses a 24-hour weigh-in and so just uh you know 16-ish hour fast before the weigh-ins drop a little bit of water weigh in then go back to eating normally so if i was going to use it that's how i would use it um because anytime you're getting close to competition you never want to switch things up too crazy because if especially if you don't know how your body's going to respond uh but if you wanted to use it, it could be done successfully. Sweet. Paul, any other questions, comments, concerns? No. Mr. Rocket? Mr. Rocket. That was a deep, thoughtful stare. I can't think of anything. All right. Well, Matt, it's been good to having you. Good having you on here. Thanks for having me. Uh, hopefully we'll get you back soon when you finish up your next round of research and you've got some more conclusive finding for us we can put bcaa's while fasting to bed maybe or maybe not yeah um, never know paul thanks for coming i guess it's, <laughs> fuck it's, me right no <laughs> it's always no. good to have you i'm glad you didn't embarrass yourself today you didn't make any inappropriate jokes until the end until the end <laughs> no, and with that signing out folks thanks for uh thanks for joining us learning a little bit about intermittent fasting maybe having your bias confirmed, maybe having your bias destroyed. Uh, we'll see you on the next one. Most for real. I, I hope most people listen to this and they're deeply hurt and cut by it. I hope so too. <laughs> That's what we're here for. Crush as, as Lane would say, crush the zealots. <laughs> <laughs>